Political Capital is brought to you by Uber Canada. 92% of drivers and delivery people on Uber report that flexibility is important when choosing work. That's why over 140,000 Canadians choose flexibility with Uber. Learn more at uber.com slash flexibilityworks. Check podcasts. Hey everyone, and welcome to Political Capital, your source for all the latest in BC politics. I'm your host, Rob Shaw, standing as always in the nerve center of the Czech News World Headquarters here in Victoria, ready to help walk you through the week that was in BC politics. A lot to get to this week, including the Premier's trip to Ottawa, the politics around addictions treatment, and a look ahead to the throne speech from Premier David Eby. To do that, let us bring in the pod squad. Jeff Ferrier, Ali Blades are here this week. Jillian's enjoying a couple weeks of holidays. Lucky for her, but well-deserved. Uh, Jeff, I have to say that train station painting behind you is looking particularly resplendent this week. Oh, well, thanks for saying that, uh, Rob. And uh, viewers at home and listeners on the podcast, you might be shocked to learn that there's a movement afoot in my office, H&K Strategies headquarters, Folks want to throw this painting in the garbage. They want to get rid of it. And I'm uh, highly offended by this. And so I'm asking uh, the viewers who see this and the listeners, please conjure up a colorful picture of an of a iconic Vancouver train station in your minds. I want your support. If you could text your support for us keeping this painting to at Czech Politics on Twitter, that would make a big difference uh, for me. So thank you, uh, viewers at home and on the podcast. Yeah, you know what's going to happen. Everyone's just going to tweet that they want that naked picture of Kramer. You know when he's lounging uh, just up there <laughs> behind you? That's what's going to happen. Costanza. Costanza. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, anyways, it'll look good. It'll look good behind you. But All right. Yeah, folks have alternative things they want behind me. Let it, same thing. Yeah. Let check well, politics you're, know. You're asking for it. But okay, speaking of asking for it, uh, Premier David Eby asking for some help from Ottawa, traveling there this week for his first bilateral sit-down meeting with the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, on the docket. Healthcare, crime, bail reform, climate change, housing, affordability, just, you know, pretty much all the big topics of our time. BC wants more money from Ottawa on those files, some legal reforms on prolific offenders. It came away with nothing concrete that I can see, but maybe that wasn't even the point uh, in the trip. Jeff, do you first... Did this accomplish anything? Was it even supposed to? How do we view a, a trip like this? Uh, we view a trip like this as the Premier and key cabinet ministers going to Ottawa to fight for BC's fair share in the upcoming federal budget. Did it accomplish any, anything? We will see uh, uh, in the uh, upcoming federal budget and in the talks around a federal health deal. Uh, but uh, wait, we'll have to wait and see, short answer. Uh, important mm -hmm. to do, but uh, results uh, up in the air. He's, the Premier is scheduled to go back on February the 7th for the summit uh, with the Prime Minister and the other Premiers on healthcare alley. And then I think he's got a Council of Federation meeting with Premiers as well. So he's sort of back and forth to Ottawa. He wanted to get in there first uh, to see the Prime Minister. Uh, is there any value to that or to sitting down with the Prime Minister before a, a big meeting of all the other premiers? Well, certainly, 
meeting with him was also the first time meeting with him in an official way as premier as well, right? So it's a bit of an introductory meeting, which I think was completely worth it. My only criticism about this whole thing is that we really haven't heard too much about it. So even if there are no announcements from these various conversations, and even if uh, there's still nothing next week, this is an opportunity for the Premier to show British Columbians, look, I'm out here in Ottawa to Jeff's point, we're fighting for us, uh, we're fighting for you, the communities, and we haven't heard anything. Uh, so even just that like preamble of these are the points that we're fighting for, this is what I'm going to bring up with the uh, Prime Minister, that would have been great, but it was a missed opportunity this week. Yeah, it is, you know, all premiers love fighting with Ottawa. It's, it's great, easy, cheap political heat. Uh, you just cast Ottawa as the villain. You go out and chop it a bunch of times. We need more money. They're not here. They're not listening to us. Uh, EB didn't really do that. He sort of, he kept it, I guess maybe it's their first meeting. He wanted to keep it more casual. There's a lot of money at stake here. If BC can get this healthcare deal with the other provinces, that adds $4 billion to the 20 plus billion the province spends annually on healthcare, the single most expensive item in the budget so far. So um, some, some high stakes here if the province comes through. But we'll watch that because there are so many other meetings coming up. Let us jump into our next topic, and it's a much bigger one. It is, uh, we'll start with BC's coroner releasing the latest overdose death statistics uh, this week. It revealed that almost 2,300 people lost their lives to toxic drugs in 2022, just shy of a horrible record um, for the province, which was the previous year in 2021. There is an average of six overdose deaths a day in BC. 11,000 people have died in the seven years since this was a public health emergency. The deaths uh, due to contaminated drugs are now the leading cause of unnatural deaths in BC, more than car crashes or murders, second overall only to cancer. So staggering numbers. Uh, there are political kind of uh, considerations in this that the parties are looking at, but at the same time, there are movements like decriminalization and the first day of that becoming a three-year pilot project in BC this week uh, as well. Where, I, you know, we talk about this before, it is an incredibly frustrating file. Why can't government get a handle on this? Why are we watching yet another announcement of record overdose deaths, Ali? What do you think? Well, no one government is going to be able to get a handle on this. And that's my honest opinion. I think this is one of those things where we've seen government work together before and we need a government that is going to call for that support across the aisle and across jurisdictions as well. So the the, the decriminalization aspect that took effect in, in this country for and at the first jurisdiction in this country, and let's also be reminded that it's a temporary thing as well, right? So we're, we're going to get, try it out. We're going to check the data. And if it works, fantastic, because if it works, that means less people are dying. And that's really what we're aiming for here, right? But it's not one government that's going to be able to solve this. And then we also can't politicize it in a way that one government, that if we change government down the road, that progress will stop. And so this is about compassion, not politics. Uh, so we're seeing opinions from across the aisle. They're all valid and they could all work because right now, truly, aren't we just trying everything to make sure that more people aren't dying? Mm -hmm. We did have an all party committee study this thing and produce a report that uh, hasn't fully been enacted, but had all parties, 
you know, behind various ideas. I, I don't know, Jeff. We, we've talked about this before again and again. These numbers are just awful. Um, why are we stuck here, do you think? Well, because it's an enormously uh, complex uh, issue with no easy solutions. If there were a quick fix uh, to this, the uh, this would have been dealt with by this government and the government before it. And that it hasn't been tells us that it's enormously complex. And it's complex because you, know, I, you did some digging. I did some digging. And 950,000 British Columbians received treatment from the Ministry of Health for Mental Health and Addiction Services in 20, 2021. 110,000 of those with moderate to severe conditions that had to be uh, mandatorily reported. So the, the scale and scope of the hurt and trauma among people in British Columbia is huge. And it's not easy to um, uh, uh, get a handle on such an enormous problem. And you know the government's spending $1.8 billion on it now on a whole spectrum of approaches. And it's not enough. And Ali's right. This is one of those issues that's not political. It's about people. And we need to have, you know, be vigilant because the problem is huge. And we need to be open to good ideas from wherever they come because we need to do better. But, you know, one of the questions that the new mental health minister, Jennifer Whiteside, got asked this week is, are we sure we're even on the right track? Because the numbers keep getting worse. And, you know, the government points to a slight change in 2019 before COVID, but it was still going up. It was just going up, you know, slightly fewer deaths. But is there a way, like, do we ever stop and just wonder if we are on the right track on this? And one of the ways that question manifested this week was on treatment and questions to the government about why don't we do better on treatment? Why don't we know simple things like, is there a wait list? How big is the wait list? Who's using the beds? Are the beds empty? Who's helped by the beds? Where are the beds? Like, it's it's an amazing seven years in that we don't know that information, that two successive governments haven't crafted a treatment system here that has any cohesive structure and works in any way. Um, I just, I just go around again, like, are we sure we're on the right track on this? Or is it just about more or are we, I don't know. I, I, I wonder about that question. I, I think it's valid criticism to say that uh, the province, which is unable to, to say what a wait list is for a treatment bed, should have better data and information. That's information we need to make good policy decisions. And they need to fix that. And they need to fix it uh, fast. We've got 3,280 beds, I think. And we need to make sure that that's enough. Uh, I think the other thing that's happening in addition to, um, well, the other thing that's happening is that drugs are becoming more toxic. So in addition to, you know, you know the sense of the system's not responding uh, as well as it should, there's also the fact that uh, uh, the drugs that have been coming into British Columbia, and this happened especially during COVID, are becoming more dangerous. And so, you know, the confluence of those two things are combining to make the situation that uh, we have today. It's just, it's absolutely ridiculous that we don't have any stats on this whatsoever. But I also find it interesting, again, in a criticism of that the David Eby's NDP government really didn't put out any communications this week. 
we've heard from the federal government that data is key in their in their funding across the country for this batch of funding, right? So wouldn't this fall completely in line with that data request? So if the federal government is going to be the one to decriminalize it, then shouldn't they be the ones to also then offer BC that support in breaking the barriers for tracking that data? Because it's a massive investment, right? Um, so we won't know after this temporary uh, trial, is it going, it, did it work unless we have that data? And I don't want it to be so much of a focus on data because we want those results to save people's lives, but it's, it certainly does matter. Yeah, and I, and I think that's the, the topic of discussion that's happening on the, on the, the health talks. It's not going to be one big health deal that applies to all the provinces. There's going to be a commitment by the federal government and then individual tailored deals, it sounds like, for each of the provinces. And one of the things that Premier Yubi did say going into uh, meetings uh, with Ottawa is that health care is a focus and mental health care is a focus. And I uh, absolutely believe that you know part of the discussions are uh, on, on this issue and on the data requirements uh, so that we can get the resources here that we need to be able to put more money and more resources and smart and done in a smart uh, measurable way so that we get the results that we want, which is, as Ali said, fewer people dying from toxic drugs in our in our communities. Mm -hmm. One of the major proposals this week came from uh, Liberal leader Kevin Falcon, his first sort of big policy plank, a $1 billion plan to boost addictions treatment, make it free, eliminate wait lists that we've been talking about, uh, create regional recovery centers where people can stay for up to a year, triple a wellness program at Riverview and expand that across the province. Uh, he's tiptoeing into involuntary care as well, which is something we've discussed and the NDP has discussed and is a very contentious uh, issue. A big policy swing. Jeff, let's go back to you on this. What do we make of this uh, very detailed, costed, uh, dense, uh, and I would argue, could, you know, a well-thought-out policy platform here from the Liberals? What do we make of it? So I think that Kevin Falcon's uh, proposal uh, here uh, was a good day for Kevin Falcon. And not because it gives him uh, some kind of a, a moral high ground. Uh, you know, he's, he's done things in the past when he was in government and said things that would give some people cause uh, for concern whether or not they feel they should, should trust him. But I think on substance, let's take all that stuff out of the equation. Uh, from the past, and you look at it on substance. And I think it was the first time that Kevin Falcon has brought forward an adult proposal, made an adult decision as leader of the opposition, making an adult decision to tackle a really significant uh, uh, challenge. And that's what people uh, uh, expect from uh, their opposition leader. And so I was glad to see him bring forward uh, some good, thoughtful ideas built in consultation with community on a really important issue. And so kudos to him. Uh, more of this, please. Uh, there are details about the announcement that, um, um, that you know, I've, I've got questions about, but on the whole, uh, more of this and less of the ambulance chasing and air shovels, please. Air shovels. Okay. Uh, Ali, what did you think? I thought this was leadership at its finest. There were a few observations about this that I think are key. Uh, one on a communications side, 
this was the week to put it out. This was the week that decriminalization was in the news. So people were paying attention to it. Advocates were paying attention to the topic. The entire country was paying attention to this topic. So they rolled it out in a precise way that just hit so many people. Everyone I know was talking about it. Granted, everyone I know are political nerds. So, you know, there's that. (laughs) But um, the rollout was great. It was detailed. And this is something that we don't necessarily see from opposition quite often. And on a political communication side of things, there's always the argument, well, I don't want to put too much forward because I don't want to reveal too much about an upcoming platform idea. And going back to what I was saying earlier about not politicizing this issue, this was leadership in not politicizing an issue that should never be politicized. And so if he's putting forward and his team are putting forward these ideas, this is the opportunity for David Eby's uh, NDP government to take pieces of that into consideration as well. So, I mean, because both sides can argue whose fault is this? And I saw a little bit about that this week. You know, um, one side is investing way too much in harm reduction and are we just throwing money at it? And the other side was... um, criticizing inaction of the BC Liberal government for so many years. We'll get back to the show in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor, Uber Canada. 92% of drivers and delivery people on Uber report that flexibility is important when choosing work. That's why over 140,000 Canadians choose flexibility with Uber. Learn more at uber.com slash flexibilityworks. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Let's wipe this slate clean on that and just take the good ideas from this side and that side and from the Greens and from other jurisdictions. And I think that was the start of this. Without overtly asking, let's work together, this also had undertones of, we can all come to the table and talk about this and provide some solutions. Can can we do that, Jeff? Does that work? Because I do notice, as Ali said, there is some political positioning shaping up here. And we do have the, you know, the NDP on the safe supply decriminalization emphasis. We have the Liberals trying to stake out ground on treatment. And both sides publicly profess their support for all of the things, but they're emphasizing certain parts of it. And I'm wondering if that's because they sense any type of, you know, public sentiment within their base or within what they think voters are looking for on the way that this file is progressing or not progressing or getting worse? Are there, is there a hardening of that public sentiment for people to just say enough, let's, let's start doing more? Or what do you make of the positioning or is there any and should there be any? Well, I, I'm not a, a, an expert on addiction, but I, I, I listened to the experts at the BC Centre uh, on uh, substance uh, abuse and they said that a, a working response to mental health and addiction requires both treatment and decriminalization and safe supply. So, you know, if you're a parent with a kid uh, on the street, 
you want to get them in treatment so that they're well. Uh, but if they're not getting into treatment for whatever reason, you sure as heck want to make sure that they don't have poison going into their veins that's going to kill them and keep them from, from going into treatment. Uh, I think there are political reasons why uh, parties emphasize different uh, uh, parts of the equation on treatment. Uh, that is something that appeals, I think, to the uh, more conservative side of the, the spectrum. I think uh, harm reduction and decriminalization is a very progressive thing. The reality is we need both, right? And the government should absolutely uh, look to this plan uh, put forward by Kevin Falcon. Kevin Falcon says he's going to put it in place during the first 90 days. First 90 days of what? I don't know. Maybe the Liberals want a spring election. I've heard rumors of that. <laughs> there you but, go. But, the no, politics this is in something there. that, yeah, a little politics. But look, at no, Ali, <laughs> Ali's right. Government should be looking at the suggestions and pulling out the good stuff and moving forward, it doesn't matter where the good ideas come from. You take them and you put them uh, into action uh, because that's what people want and what's going to give us the best results. Ali, Kevin Falcon made an interesting comment as well, where he said not everyone in his party is going to support necessarily this position. He's, he's taking a political calculation here that, and he admitted it, there will be some people in his party who say, why are you doing this? They may be on that far, further right spectrum that, they don't believe in decriminalization or safe supply, which he's publicly supporting. Uh, and they don't believe really so much in spending this money on, on this in this way. Uh, is there a, any risk within his party on that? Or it seemed like he was just making a decisive decision to say, you know what, this is what we need to do. Um, I don't care about that part of it. But is there anything to worry about there? I don't think there's anything to worry about. Uh, we choose leaders that will lead. And this is exactly what Kevin did. Uh, he decided that, you know, he put forward a substantial figure. I saw $1.5 billion and that of investment to make this happen. That number would scare anyone on the center, right? But this is the leadership that we've been asking for as British Columbians, because it, it can't matter anymore on healthcare specifically how much we spend to save people's lives. You can't put a number on that. And the leadership here is also, this is where you come back to the BC Liberal model though. We're going to invest all of this money. We're also going to make sure that the economy is doing well so that we can continue to afford it. But then as I was reading this, this announcement, I was also thinking about, well, there's, there's additional investments that we have to make as well. If we want to make sure that there are enough beds and treatment for people who want it when they want it. Then we also have to make sure that there are doctors, counselors, nurses, everyone that goes into the treatment of that person. And so I think for him, it's it's the leadership to ensure that all of those pieces come together so that it doesn't crumble apart once we get to that execution. It's the foresight of that plan. Um, it's a substantial number, but it's it's I don't think it's gonna be hurt him at all. Can, okay. can I push back gently on the size of the number, right? So it's a uh, billion dollars operating over three years and $500 million in capital. It's about, uh, on the operating side, it's about a 15% total increase over three years, which is in line with inflation. And, we, and, we've, and, and, and I'm not saying this to, to dump on the, the proposal. Uh, I'm saying, you know, going back to what I said earlier, about 110,000 people in British Columbia with uh, moderate to severe mental health and substance abuse uh, uh, 
challenges that the system needs to respond better to may require an awful lot more than what uh, Kevin Falcon's uh, proposing uh, here in terms of resources and response. And so it's not to say that what he's proposing isn't a good step in the right direction, because I think that on the whole that it is. But, you know, to be to I think it's one thing to say we're going to make progress. I think it's another thing to say, well, and this is going to make sure that anyone who wants care gets it when they need it. I think that's aspirational and it's good, but the number I don't think lines up with the result that he wants to get. Yeah. Well, it's the only numbers out there in a sense, you know, if you contrast it to what the NDP government was announcing this week, there was another small scale, tiny regional, you know, youth uh, addictions team announcement, which is not insignificant. It's just, I don't know what that means. I don't know how that fits into the plan. I don't know where it's going. The, the current approach seems to be this scattershot, random, small scale, throw everything out, ribbon cutting announcements with ministers that don't coalesce into anything even remotely resembling a goal. There, there's even not a stated goal. At least there's a stated goal here of no wait times, right? And then they'll be funding private beds at an enormous expense to eliminate wait times. But I don't hear that from the other side. I hear more is needed. And it's more of a question of, do we know where we're going there on, on treatment? But anyways, I, I think it's a... Yeah, it's, a, it's fair. It's fair, absolutely fair comment. And I'm, and, and I'm saying this not as a, a way of backstopping anything government is doing, but just as a mm -hmm. British Columbian who's looking at the challenge and saying, you know, you know, it's maybe bigger than we all in, we all think. Oh, sure. Yeah. No, I think it's it, it may be... It, it may be magnitudes larger uh, than, than that number, I think, for sure. But we just, nobody knows, which is one of those things that is just amazing seven years in that we, two governments have, have been able to tell us some kind of the basic stuff here. But I do think that's going to be part of uh, the throne speech uh, from Premier David Eby. Uh, and I think uh, that, that uh, developing a data system was hinted at from um, the mental health minister during the response this week. Which brings us to that throne speech uh, from Premier Eby on Monday, his first uh, as Premier, the first kind of agenda-setting uh, view of the government uh, and its agenda for uh, this session, the first large stamp I think we'll see from him uh, on the government outside of his 100-day plan, which we've been following. I'm expecting this to be big, packed, full of maybe even detail, which we don't get uh, and haven't got in throne speeches in a long time. That kind of detail is saved for later on. Ali, any expectations here? Any idea what we think we might uh, see? Or are we all just kind of watching together in anticipation of, uh, of what the, this new premier might do? I think, you know, last year's throne speech was about putting people first. And I, I don't think that it varies too much from that. I think that we still need to invest in people. Uh, this was last year was also still a pandemic throne speech. And so we're moving away from that a little bit and just in, in the economy and just how th things have been moving on. And so I don't think that there's too much of a reserve of how much money we're spending and being a little bit more cautious. So if there was a throne speech to really invest in people and to provide people some hope, this one is the one to do it. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that last year's throne speech was also 
the uh, out of touch museum spend of close to $800 million. And so hopefully that there's, there's not a blunder uh, of that this year. Uh, but I think generally putting people first, let's just do it again. Version yeah. two. Yeah. Yeah, no, we had sort of got to the throne speeches by the end of the Horgan administration where there wasn't really anything in it per se. The last one, yeah, that was that was a tough time for the Horgan government. Jeff, what do you think? Big, ambitious, packed full of stuff? Like that seems to be, that seem, that's what I would anticipate, but um, what do you think? Yeah, uh, I think he's going to go in there and say, just settle for what you've got. It's good enough. No, <laughs> he's not going to do that. It's going to be, you know, the, the, the hundred day plan throne speech. Uh, so I'm looking for two things in it. One is meat on the bones, more meat on the bones of the four key priorities that uh, uh, Premier Eby has um, uh, suggested that he's going to and, and is focusing on. So uh, housing and affordability and health care and uh, public safety and uh, with a healthy dose of climate in there to, to shore up uh, his support within the party. The second thing that I'm looking for in the throne speech is a clear uh, uh, a clear statement of support for my keeping this painting as my backdrop in upcoming political <laughs> capital episodes. And I encourage people to go to Check Politics, at Check Politics on Twitter, to show their support too. Premier, I'm, yeah. I'm counting well, on you. That'll, I'm sure that'll be in there somewhere. Uh, it's all BC liberals I, in the office who want me to get rid of this painting. So look it. Uh, <laughs> right side of the politics, do too, we, Premier. Yeah. Do we think, I, I was thinking about this question, and I, you know, throne speeches over the years have become kind of vague documents, right? And there was a time when they were used to announce very specific things. Uh, and then, you know, governments successively figured it's a lot more fun to announce those things in the real world, um, you know, with people behind you and, and ribbons and the whatnot than it is to have the LG in a very boring way. Not to say this LG is boring, but some LGs have been pretty boring. What are you doing? Calling the LG boring. That's so great. No, this LG is great. This LG is great, but some <laughs> LGs have been, have been very boring. Um, I remember a particular LG once who someone wrote in the throne speech, a hashtag when Twitter was just taking off and this LG did not know Twitter. And and we were all betting that they were going to read it as, uh, instead of a hashtag, they were going to read it as pound. The, the number sign would be... <laughs> <laughs> they did not. They just skipped that entire sentence that was not actually read by the LG in the house. But anyways, the point being that it can be a little boring. And I just kind of wonder, Jeff, we'll stay with you on this one and go around again. Do we think Eby's going to announce things in here? Um, or is he the kind of premier who wants to do it like Christy Clark and John Horgan wants to do it in the real world? Or has he got so much stuff that he'll just throw it out? Or what do you think? It's a good question. Um, astute observation. You know, that's me saying nice things, unlike what you just said about the, the lieutenant governor. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I could see him uh, putting more detail uh, into the throne speech. I could see him indicating what legislation he's going to bring forward. If you look at the Queen's speeches, God, the King's speeches now in England. I miss the Queen. Um, they're, they're very short and direct, and they're very much about here's the legislation that we're bringing in in this session and what it's going to do. And uh, I could see he'd be doing that as a communications opportunity to announce and re-announce all the things that he's doing to make progress. 
And uh, I think he's way more likely to do that than Premier Horgan was, given, you know, he's got yeah. a short window to make a mark with the voters. So, yeah. 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 What do you think, Ali? My Maybe I'm overthinking it, but you know, as a journalist, you're always sitting there reading the speech and then you have to kind of like read between the lines and craft clues. And I have a feeling we're just going to see EB say, I'm doing this, 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 here's this bill, it's coming up and we're going to do that. And then, you know, kind of throw it out there, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. I think generally across Canada, we want, we want any opportunity to listen to what the government's going to do, but in a way that we understand. So I don't think it's necessarily that it's not going to have a lot of detail. I think it just needs to read like the person listening on the other side is finally going to understand what's happening to them and how it impacts them. That's generally what we as Canadians want in our, in our governments. Um, And then again, I keep talking about this, but I think it's true. He doesn't do, David Eby doesn't do a really good job of, creating the media for himself, i.e. with this, get put everything in the throne speech, do it now, and then have another opportunity to, to announce it again. Have more opportunities to share what you need to say. Throne speech shouldn't mm. exclude that. Yeah. I'll tell you what I don't, what I, what I don't expect in the throne speech. And, and I'm not talking about any former speech writers to premiers in particular, um, uh, past premiers, for example, who may have written. Anyways, uh, often the throne speeches are seen as the uh, speechwriter's uh, um, opportunity to show that they are the best, most dramatic writer in the history of political discourse. I think this is going to be a pretty straightforward, direct, action-focused uh, uh, throne speech. And you know, not the uh, the one you send to the academy for style and uh, flourish. Yeah, surprisingly, no throne speeches ever won an Academy Award. I don't know why. Possibly because of uh, the aforementioned boring lieutenant governors that I'll just keep repeating here as I dig. Oh my god! As I dig up from the hole that I'm in, there's going to be royal edicts against us. <laughs> not the current one again, just so that everyone's aware. I love the current one's great, best LG ever. But uh, some of the other ones were were. Uh, very, very boring. Anyways, that's, uh, that'll get me canceled. But uh, other than that, we will watch for the throne speech, then the premier again in Ottawa for the, the first minister's meeting with the prime minister. And then who knows what will happen next week. It's going to be a busy time with the legislature back in BC politics. Thanks to Jeff and Allie for being here this week. Thank you to, uh, to everyone who is listening. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. And we'll be back next week with all the latest here on Political Capital. Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.